0: Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. Hi, it's Bill Radke, host of KUAW's Week in Review, back with another episode of Words in Review. Every week I play back a word or phrase that's been in the news and ask, why is that the language we're using? And this week... You are running the show. I asked you what words you notice and wonder about. And a KUOW listener named Chris left me this voicemail.
1: I drive for those rideshare companies, so I pick up a lot of young people. And uh, I can tell you, like, this is uh, almost word for word, a typical conversation. I mean, bro.
0: Like, literally, bro. I mean, bro, like, literally. Bro, like, literally, I mean, bro. Oh, bro, literally. I mean, like, literally. And we know Chris can't be exaggerating because he said it's almost word for word. So why do people talk like this? Well, I wish I knew an author of a brand new book called Like Literally, Bro. I don't. But I do know the author of a brand new book called Like Literally, Dude, arguing for the good in bad English. She is a professional linguist named Valerie Friedland. Can we agree, Valerie, that the world needs more love and like less like? (laughs)
2: i don't know i love like i think we should embrace like a little more it certainly has been embraced by the majority of speakers particularly those under the age of 40 so i don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon but i think it's just misunderstood
0: well why do you say that you don't just tolerate it you like it what why is like misunderstood
2: well you know like has been around a long time it's basically older than any of us here today. It started in about the 1700s in the discourse marker use that I think your caller was talking about, because it's often used to signal that what you're about to say has some impreciseness to the exact fit in the world you're trying to describe, but that you're you're generally trying to get that inexactness and impreciseness in what you're describing because you don't want to be exact. So it's actually purposeful. I would say it might be more verbose than some people like, but that's really a matter of personal preference.
0: You and I both have teenagers, Valerie. Are you saying
2: there is no such thing as too many likes in a sentence? No, I'm saying something different. What I'm saying is there is a lot more behind like than we give it credit for. It's more sophisticated and complicated than we think it is. But that doesn't mean that excessive use is something that we should embrace. So I'm not saying we should just use it willy-nilly, but the reality is most speakers don't. If you look at the majority of speakers that use like in a productive fashion, they use it as an approximator. So instead of the word about, they use it as a discourse marker, like I just illustrated, or they use it as a quotative verb, but they don't use them all at once all the time. And that's really, I think, the use that gets people riled up.
0: One of my favorite things about your book, which I really enjoyed, Valerie, is you made me think about how the words, and there's research behind this, could be like, could be um, could be uh, it's not nothing. We, when you signal to me that it, it, it's going to be imprecise or maybe it's going to be a complicated thought or an unusual word that you're reaching for, I will listen to that. I will listen differently because you gave me that signal.
2: Yes, we find that to be particularly true with what we call, as linguist filled pauses, and those are ums and uhs, and we find those universally. They're in all languages studied. Not only that, but there's more than one in all languages studied. So when, when we get messages like that, you know, every language finds them useful, that must be telling us something about them actually being useful.
0: Valerie, haven't dictionaries caught on to the fact that literally doesn't mean what it used to anymore?
2: Yes, I think you can actually find the figurative use of literally in the dictionary, but marked as colloquial or not standard. And I think what's happened with literally is it's gone the same path as many, many other words in English that have become intensifiers that boost or amplify what we're saying rather than retain their original meaning. Many people might be surprised to learn that very didn't mean very. Centuries ago. In fact, it meant something very different and it meant something much more similar to literally, which was true or actually. So like, when we like look- verily, like verily, yes. Or if you speak French, like the word vrai, which is actually where very comes from, it's a French borrowing and it meant true. And when we look back in the 1400s and 1500s, we find it used this way where people would say, Jesus was a very prophet, which doesn't mean he was very profiting (laughs) or very profitable, but it meant that he was a true prophet. But when you describe someone as being true or you describe something as being literal, what you mean is it contains a 100% of whatever qualities make that thing a thing, a huge amount of something or so real it felt literal. So if I'm literally freezing, it means... I am so close to being truthfully freezing that it feels like I actually am. And the same process has happened with so many words that we now use as intensifiers. The only difference with literally, I think, is that the figurative meaning feels completely opposite of its literal meaning, and that's what bugs us.
0: Yes. That's worth being bugged by, though, isn't it? I, I You could be saying literally freezing to, again, signal me that you mean literally It is freezing. It's what do people say now when they mean what literally used to mean?
2: They still say literally. I think the trick is there. If I'm outside in my parka along with you and you are uh, dressed in two parkas and I only have one and it's minus 100, you probably know that I truly am literally freezing. (laughs) But when I'm talking about it before we have dinner and I'm waiting for dinner and I say, I'm literally starving. I wish they'd hurry up. Give us some credit that we're actually pretty good at contextual decoding. I don't think anybody actually thinks we're going to die on the floor there because we're starving in a literal sense. But think about other words we do this with that don't bother us. So uh, if you say you're hardly working these days, does that mean you're working very hard?
0: I'm not working much.
2: Right. Which means you're not doing something very hard. It's not with great difficulty, but the original meaning of hardly is hard meaning with great difficulty. So we actually now use it in a completely opposite way that we used to. But how many of us say that bugs us? None of us, because we don't remember it. The point here being that literally is just one more of these same words, like awfully, like hardly, that have come to mean the opposite of where they originally started, but no one seems to get confused by them. So I don't think we've exactly seen the decline of civilization quite yet with literally.
0: There's a theme here of listeners being concerned about words losing their meaning or their impact. A listener named Scotty complained to me about the overuse of super.
1: Super this and super that, when really it just means very. Something is very fast. It's not super fast. Those kind of words should be saved for something that's truly super or truly awesome, not just, you know, you're throwing it out multiple times every day. Words should mean something. If you climb a mountain and you see a view, that that could be awesome. And being out at night, out in nature where you're away from the city lights and uh, you, you see a meteor shower or something like that, I think that's awesome,
0: but um, not
1: just everyday
0: stuff. Valerie, do you agree that words lose their meaning or their power if they're overused?
2: I think that there is some truth to that in the sense that Those words that were being talked about, both literally and super, are words that have taken on a meaning of extremeness or uh, greatness when we use them in those contexts, like this is a super good meal, meaning it's an amazing good meal. And we use those because part of what we want as humans is to communicate an intensity of emotion. And words that have been used too often to communicate the intensity of emotion start to lose the intensity of emotion, which is, I think, what your your caller is talking about. And that's why intensifiers like literally, like very, like super are recycled more than almost any other word in English, meaning that we, we use new ones all the time and then go back to old ones that we used to use hundreds of years ago because now we're finding them handy and they actually have weight again. So I think it's absolutely true that when we start to use a word a lot in a hyperbolic sense, it kind of loses the ability to connote that extremeness, which is why we shift to new ones. But- Language always comes up to provide a new way of talking about things using a different kind of hyperbolic expression. So again, it's a matter of, do we want to get tied down to what we knew and be upset over the way that language is changing? Or do we want to accept that it's going to change? This is a great capacity of human language to signal intensity in different ways. And we can just be on the frontier rather than waving goodbye.
0: Well, maybe I just need to get more imaginative about new words then, because I do know what Scotty means. In my uh, industry, I have noticed this arms race of when I started out, we would rarely said we were excited on the job, only if we were really in an abnormally animated state. And then so many people started saying they were excited about some ordinary event that that became not sufficiently enthusiastic so then it was i'm super excited to see your next project i'm elated about this new hire we are over the moon to see your superhuman efforts and today literally today someone said in a meeting they are ecstatic about something and i thought (laughs) you know if 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 she's really feeling ecstasy i wish i could know that but i have just i'm afraid i've tuned these words out along with all the exclamation marks and crying, laughing emojis. And I I do feel that something's lost there. I'm sorry I've tuned out these, these words.
2: You know, I think there is some truth to that in the sense that we are uh, kind of being more hyperbolic in general in the way we relate to each other. But I don't think that's as much tied to language doing that as our current culture that tends to embrace this intensity of emotion and the subjective experience. And so that's what feeds language rather than the other way around. So it's not, I mean, I wish I could be ecstatic in meetings as well, but it's not that language is making someone do it. It's more the culture is bringing that out in language. And that is causing us to have to come up with new forms of, of encapsulating those feelings that we want to convey. So, you know, I think it has more to do with the changing state of our social relationships and the fact that we are more overt in expressing expressing our feelings and our thoughts to each other than we ever were. We may not like the changes in the social fabric. We may not like this new culture, but language isn't to blame. It's really how we're using language.
0: I'm glad to hear you say that because I've never thought of myself as a purist or a stickler. I don't care about dangling modifiers or preposition at the end of a sentence. So I think you're right that I'm not really bothered by some kind of wrong word use. I'm bothered by the performativeness. I would say it feels um, a little dishonest and even lazy sometimes when... I can do it, too. I'm, I'm grabbing a word, which is easy, where I could be putting actual energy instead of pretending to agree with someone. I could show them how much I agree with them through my actions or instead of using a dramatic word, I could show you my passion through my actions. And I guess that's you helped me realize. I think that's what's bothering me about the use of words these days.
2: Well, I think this performative nature is something that's certainly tied to younger um, lifestyles today. When you think about how much the Internet and uh, social media plays a role in their lives. So I don't know that we can even blame the young speakers. It's the technology that we give them and the ideas that we should be visible at all times and track what we're doing on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram constantly so we're we're asking people to perform and we're asking people to make their lives exciting for public viewing and i think a lot of language has grown up around that you know a lot of social media is language based a lot of tweets language based mm-hmm. uh, a lot of facebook language based so we are trying to find ways to make ourselves look exciting yes. over forums that are all language based and this is what has, I think, produced a lot of these intensifications that you and I are are discussing about and saying that some people definitely don't like them. Personally, I don't find them problematic because people do know how to shift in other contexts to more everyday speech. You know, when I'm at home with my kids, they're not telling me, you know, this was super awesome. It's hella amazing. Mm -hmm. That's not how they talk to me. That's how they talk to their friends because those are the people they want to perform for. Obviously mom's not that cool. I don't merit that kind of performance. So I I do think we're also practiced in going between different personas in that way. and, And that speakers can regulate their use of those features somewhat.
0: Maybe this is the same thing. A listener named Martha contacted me about this exaggeration.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) In place of a simple yes in the answer to a question. If we exaggerate and say absolutely when we just mean yes, then when we want to say that that something really is exactly or absolutely remarkable, we don't have the capacity to do it because we've, we've exaggerated in our everyday talk. So I think that's unfortunate. If I say well, I had a fire in my house, it was an absolute loss. There's nobody that's going to misconstrue my meaning in that case because I've used absolutely in other contexts. So I think sometimes we don't look at language from the perspective of users and realize that language is very contextually and situationally based. And, uh, you know, we use words all the time that require context for unpacking and disambiguation. If I say this or that, here or there, me or you, him or her, all of those words have no meaning unless they're in context. And yet, even though everybody could be a they, everybody can be a he, you can be a you and I can be an I, but it can switch to someone else in another context, doesn't mean that that confuses us when I'm using it in a particular moment. Mm. So I think what the complaint is really I don't like that particular word used away from its original use. But language is metaphorical. Language is about extension. Most of the words we say today are not the original meaning of those words.
0: Yeah. Finally, Valerie, this is not a word, but it's a way of speaking. Scotty talked to me about vocal fry. They call it creaking. I call it croaking.
1: It, and it's very common especially on NPR with interviewees in fact that's how i discovered it you know it's talking like this uh because you <laughs> for whatever reason you don't you don't push enough air to make your vocal cords vibrate so you just talk like that i just find it very unpleasant what what what's so hard about pushing just a little bit of air to make your vocal cords do what they're supposed to do <laughs>
2: Vocal fry is definitely something that I've heard a lot about, and that's why I had one chapter devoted to it. Even though we associate it with women's voices today, more predominantly, it's actually been studied as what's been called a hyper-masculine feature in British speech, where it was mainly associated three to 10 times more, actually, with men's speech than women's. And it wasn't associated with these negative attributes like uh, careless and uh, unpleasant and diseased, which it has been referred to in women's speech. Instead, it was considered typically a high-status, authoritative feature, and and perhaps giving off a little bit of a sense of a snobby, bored affectation. But it definitely wasn't viewed in the same way we hear it talked about today. What's really interesting is it seems to be tied to the rise of women in broadcasting in the 1990s and early 2000s, where we find that women broadcasters, female newscasters who were studied, use vocal fry about twice as much as the male broadcasters did. Um, and even when we compared the broadcast speech to normal speech, so non professional speech, we find this trend tends to be more extreme in broadcast speech. Well, what's the pressure on women in broadcasting to have a lower voice pitch? And basically vocal fry is a way that your vocal folds vibrate when you drop in pitch so that the vocal folds don't have quite as rhythmic of a vibration pattern, but are a little more irregular. And there's nothing wrong with your vocal folds. That's just a normal phonation or or type of way of, of, of operating those vocal folds, but it gives rise to that kind of crackly poppy noise. So women seem to have dropped their voice pitch, especially as they get to the end of an intonation contour, to get all this credibility and authoritativeness that seems to be associated on the airwaves with male pitches or lower pitched voices. That seems to have highlighted vocal fry for us in a way that I think British use didn't because we hear so many news reporters, female news reporters using it it has exaggerated the extent of vocal fry in their general population and also made people not like it because again, these are voices we don't really like on the air to begin with. And vocal fry sounds um, like it's somehow a uh, disorder when it's actually not, it's just a natural phonation pattern and it's being put to work there to achieve some professional recognition and authority and respect.
0: Do you think we'll get to a point where we've heard enough vocal fry that it's not nails on a chalkboard to anybody? We're used to it?
2: (laughs) I think so. You know, a lot of these changes are upsetting to older speakers that don't have it and haven't been around it because they're relatively new features. And ha- as we hear it more often, and young women and young men seem to hear vocal fry, not as annoying and distracting and irritating like older speakers do, but as sort of urban and chill and even professional. I know that's a shock, but that's how they rate it. And so I think that it will continue, but I I don't hear it in my my students' as extreme as sometimes you hear it on the radio. And I think that's because in normal speaking context, you have other things that you think about and you're looking at body language and eye gaze and sort of the communicative import of that context on radio. You don't have that to distract you. So you focus so intensely on the voice. So in general populations, I don't think it tends to be as noticeable or as bothersome.
0: I get the impression it's public radio folks who care so much about what you're writing about. Is there anything else you want to leave us with?
2: Well, I think the biggest message is just to embrace change rather than push hard so hard against it because it's going to happen anyway. And I'm not telling anybody they have to like it. You can dislike it, but just recognize that these features are more sophisticated and complicated than we give them credit for when we just dismiss them out of hand. And instead of just hating them, wouldn't you prefer to just know where they come from and why people use them? Not to use them yourselves, but just to maybe be a little more sensitive to the grandkids or the kids or the young professionals that you work around, because that's really what language is about. It's about connection. It's about communication. And it's about community
0: connection, communication, community. Now, are you against those things just because you don't like vocal fry or hyperbole or excessive likes? No, I don't think so. But Valerie makes an important point. If you say something and I think that's wrong, that's lazy, that's bad, does it help our connection, our communication? Does it help our community? You know, I noticed every one of the listeners I spoke to for this segment used some form of speech that is in Valerie's book. They said, um, or uh, like, or totally, walking around instead of walking around. I talk like that, too. You know who doesn't talk like that? Alexa and Siri. And I'm glad I got to talk to all of you real human beings. You gave me great ideas for this episode. So what else you got? I'm sorry. What else do you have? Do you have a word or phrase you want me to shine a light on? I mean, on which you want me to shine a light? Just email me then at bradke, B-R-A-D-K-E at K-U-O-W dot org. And make sure you use exclamation marks so I know you're super excited. I'll be ecstatic to hear from you. Talk to you next time.
2: Everything is awesome. Everything is
0: Thanks for the production help to Jessica Dial, Kevin Kinistet, and Teo Popescu. See you next time.